0: And I think what the job of a real advisor and what clients want, they will tell you this, please simplify my life, right? What they want is they want you to consider all that. That ball of yarn is the complexity you're talking about. It's the nuance. It's the edge cases. It's the, what about this? What about that? What about this? But then we have to come out the other side and go, you know what? And this is why this job is scary. It's because you don't know if you're right, right? You have to come out the other side and say, you know what? Based on everything I know about you, based on all the Discussions we've had, I think we should do this. And it's the this that represents elegant simplicity. Greetings, I'm Carl Richards, creator of The Behavior Gap. And I want you to steal my strategy. You're listening to Steal My Strategy. The show where we talk to smart people who invite you to copy, review, and remix practical ideas you can apply to life and business. Are you ready? Let's get to it.
1: So Carl, you are the first guest we've ever had on this podcast who has featured on Oprah.com in their bio. That is something I've got to find out about right away. Everybody wants to be featured by Oprah. How did you get featured by Oprah, Carl?
0: Yeah, Robert, first of all, there's a big distinction between featured on Oprah.com and featured on Oprah,
1: right? Oh, well, I suppose there is, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and that has been so long ago that there was some piece in the Times, the New York Times column that I wrote that they picked up and ran on Oprah.com. So I wasn't, as much as I've tried and want to and dream about at night, being on Oprah, talking about the book, it was one of the columns I wrote for the Times.
1: Yeah, well, this is actually such a good point about branding and marketing because it's what people see. And when I looked at your bio and all of the show notes that my production team put together, and I saw that, you know, that really was meaningful to me, as are so many other things you've done. I mean, you've been all over the place, New York Times column, advisors, I think very few of them probably don't know who you are. This is a brand that you've built successfully over many years. How long have you been doing this?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. So the Times column, so that column ran weekly for 10 years. And that started in 2010. And before that, there wasn't much, right? Like I was putting stuff up on my own website and Financial Planning Magazine ran something. So there wasn't much before that. So I really sort of think of it as around 2010. But I should say, sorry, there wasn't much public, but there was two or three years of like every, not every day, but at least every week, putting something up in public and knowing that only my mom and my, it turns out I found out later, my sister was lying. (laughs) So it was really only my mom was reading it. Right. So there's lots of just like, I guess I'd have to say 2007, 2005, 2007, and then 2010 things started happening. And the book came out in 2012. And that sort of kicked everything off.
1: Yeah. And while you were doing this in those early years, sort of building like 2007 forward, the time when your mom and your sister were your primary readers, (laughs) were you an advisor at the time as well?
0: Yeah. So I was an advisor. I actually early in 95, I applied for what I thought was a security guard job And the ad, I found out later, the ad actually said securities, but I didn't know the difference. (laughs) So that's how I got into the industry. I thought I was going to be a mall cop. And then I worked for some like Fidelity Investments National Call Center. And then I went into not knowing any better, not knowing anything. Actually, I went into the, worked in some of the big brokerage firms and then started my own firm, my own RIA at some point. And I can't remember exactly the year. So yeah, I was an advisor, which is where this work came from, right? Like, the conversations I was having with clients was what I was trying to communicate in the column and the sketches.
1: Yeah. What a path. My goodness. And your yeah. column and sketches, behavior gap, where did that term come from? What does that mean? What does it stand for?
0: Yeah. So early on, like it's just really funny looking back because I thought I had like discovered <laughs> some new idea, which was essentially that I was so frustrated because I got like the best training in the industry. Really, I honestly believe I had the best training. I had my SEMA designation at the time, I had my CFP, and I kept running into this experience where we would build these really detailed models for finding the best investment. And at the time, it was mutual funds or institutional money managers, and right, you'd run these sort of screens, and out of the bottom of your screen would fall the manager you should hire. And, and then, well, later it became predictable. It was like 18 to 24 months later that manager would underperform as we all sort of know now. And then we'd make a change, right? We'd have to fire the manager and we'd hire another one. And I slowly started realizing like the manager, the investment, when we look back, the investment would do one thing. And then since we had changed two or three times, the investor would do something less, right? So like, if you're just listening to this, if I was drawing it, it would be a bar graph and the investment would be high and the investor would be a little bit lower, and I was like, man, there's a gap between investment returns and investor returns. And then I was so frustrated with it, actually, Robert, that I was about to leave the industry because I was like, I have the best training and I can't do this. And I'm a relatively competitive person. At least my wife says so. So I was like, if I can't do this, I need to leave. And then that then then I ran across Dalbar's work on the difference between investment and investor returns. And there's plenty of whatever methodology problems with how they come up with their number, but Morningstar's replicated that on a smaller level. And so that gap between investor and investment returns was the original behavior gap. I originally, not very many people know this, but I originally named it the emotional gap. So I was like, it's because of emotions. Within a week or two, I was like, no, it's actually behavior. Mm -hmm. Went out and trademarked the term only so I don't care if other people use it. I just never wanted to be told I couldn't. So then that's what it meant initially, but it's grown now to... Any well-intentioned behavior, right? We think we're doing the right thing. Any well-intentioned behavior that produces a suboptimal result, right? So you think you're doing the right thing, is turning out these results. Then why are you doing it? Like, let's close that gap. So that's the sort of history behind it.
1: Yeah, yeah, outstanding. And it's amazing just to listen to you talk. I see you. You're illustrating things even in terms that are visual. This is obviously the whole premise of what you've right. done with this, Carl most advisors are not creatives. They're more analytical. And you seem to have this unique mix of both. And this is part of what we want to steal, right? Steal your strategy. How can advisors get to this point where they're really helping clients in these visual ways, understand these concepts and adopt the right behaviors? So how did you go from recognizing this problem to actually creating educational content and helping people see this problem.
0: Yeah. So maybe it would be helpful to start a little more broadly, not necessarily just straight up visuals, but just the idea of simplifying something. Right. Mm-hmm. And cause I think we, I mean, the first time I remember this and it will be obvious, anybody who knows my work will know right away that I didn't, <laughs> I have no art training, Right. So I have no art background. I wasn't a doodler as a kid. Like, I don't, none of this stuff. It was really, I was sitting across the table from some clients. I can remember who they were Dave and Diane. Dave's an emergency room doctor, Diane was a technology sales rep. So, both super smart, really successful. And there was a concept that I felt like they needed to understand in order for us to make the, this important decision we were going to make. And I was trying to explain the concept. And I thought I was good at this. I sort of prided myself on being good at explaining complex things. And remember, Dave and Diane, smart, successful, intelligent people, it's not their fault. I'm just getting blank stares from them. And so it was sort of out of an act, it was literally an act of desperation where I was like, no, like this. And there happened to be a whiteboard in the conference room I was using. I'd never used it before. I don't think anybody ever used it, to be honest. I just was like, no, like this. And I drew like a circle and an arrow and a square and I labeled them. Like that was the extent of it. And they were like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> right. And I became sort of addicted to that feeling. And I think most advisors will relate to that. If they just think of an estate attorney, most estate attorneys have like schematics in the document that show like, here's a box. It's called account one. Here's another box that this is called your irrevocable trust. Right. Like, Again, there's an arrow. And there's 40 other pages of documents and everybody wants to see the one with the little drawing. So I think the first thing to realize is, A, you don't need any skill, like art background. And it's funny, those early, and this happened the other day, actually, I was at lunch with somebody and we were talking about a business idea and I grabbed the napkin and I was like, well, what if we tried this, this, and this? And they wanted the napkin. I'm like, hey, it was a mess. I was like, hey, I'll put it on another piece of paper for you. Like, can I, I'll clean it up back at the office. They're like, no, I want this one. because it has." The emotional resonance of the experience, too. Mm -hmm. So let me just back up real quick, though, in terms of simplifying. One trick that I, two tricks I'll give you that I think you should steal. One is written, for written content. Like, I really think perfection, and our industry is so bad at this. It's one of, like, we're the worst. If you've been to a conference, which I know you've been to a bunch, you know how bad we are at this. Like we all sit there and watch people put slides up that you can't even read. And the numbers are so small and there's so much in there and they turn and read the slide and we all sit there and we hate it. And then when we get asked to present, we do the same thing to people. And so you just, I think if you just stop and say, wait, perfection's not achieved when there's nothing left to add. And this is from the little prince, I think. But when there's nothing left to take away. And the trick I use is I pretend like you only get people are only going to remember one thing. So I like to play a little game where if it's a presentation or it's just a clients, pretend like the clients are going to get up. You're going to leave and the clients are going to get up and they're going to walk out. And as soon as they walk out the door, there's going to be somebody there with a clipboard. And the person with the clipboard is going to say, what do you remember from that meeting? What would you like them to say? And you only get one. And then frame everything else as support to that. So if you're building a presentation, you may have 10 slides, but you want to reinforce the one thing each time. So that's one trick that I use, especially in the writing. Like, what's the one thing I'm trying to communicate? You're not a fiction writer, right? You don't need to have narrative and character development. And you need them to remember one thing. What's the one thing? So that's one trick that I play. And I we actually go remove sentences, whole sentences at a time, and see if we lost anything. And if we didn't lose anything, we leave the sentence out right? So those are some of the tricks that we use.
1: That's excellent. You said two things though, Carl, now I'm on the edge of my seat. What's the second?
0: Okay. So the first trick was the clipboard ladies standing outside the office. What's Ah, the one thing you remember? The second one is literally take things off. Like here's an example of that. Just go grab your, let's see, like if you have a flagship client communication piece or prospective client communication piece, maybe it's your brochure, maybe it's a slide deck, just grab that and literally go through it and see what you can take away. If There's too much there. And for instance, I mean, this is the length I go to. And this is an early lesson. The early versions of the behavior gap sketch, it was just a bar graph, right? And one bar was labeled investment return. And one bar was labeled investor return. And the difference there was labeled the behavior gap. We used to have numbers on it. Like we used to have the numbers, whatever, 12.3 and whatever, like we'd go find a Morningstar number, or a Dalbar number that we've trusted and we'd put it on there. And I learned that people wanted to argue about the number <laughs> and they would miss the point. So that's another trick we use is like really look for distractions and pull all the distractions off. Gender, I'm all for writing about gender, if that's the point. If it's not the point, make sure it's not a distraction. Religion, politics, I'm all for, it. totally fine, if it's the point. I remember we said something about Mitt Romney in a column, and I was like, no, it's not the point. So numbers, if you have a slide deck where you have a bunch of numbers, could you get the message across without the numbers, right? Like a pie graph, if you all you're trying to prove is 50% of your return comes from this, do you really need the 50% and the 7% and the 2.7 and 3.4%? You could just have a pie Party so, those are some of the things I would just work on. Eliminate distractions, see what you can remove. It's all, we say this internally a lot, it's all in the service of the single point. We call it the zinger. It's mm. all in the service of the zinger. What is the zinger? Right? What's the thing you're hoping the clipboard lady will answer to the clipboard lady when they walk outside?
1: Yeah. This is quality teaching, Carl. That's what you're talking about. And that's how people learn things. They can't absorb everything. But I, I have to challenge you, though, because the advice business is a complex one. There are a lot of factors involved. And as an advisor, I can say, well, Carl, that's wonderful if you're making an image a day calendar. Yeah. But how am I going to do that when I'm sitting there talking to somebody about their all the elements of their life and their estate and their kids and their beneficiaries? And I need to establish trust and credibility by showing them how much I know when I write and what I put on my website.
0: Look, first of all, so I work pretty hard to balance between a punch in the face and an empathetic hug. And so I may do both here because like, I totally get that sentiment, right? Like, and that's the empathetic hug. Like I believe me, I know that's the feeling. And the punch in the face is it's just not true. Like people do not, you do not earn trust by proving to someone how much you know. And Kitsis and I have a podcast and we argue about this all the time. So maybe there's, in fact, I reserve the right to be wrong about everything I'm going to say, but I think you earn trust by proving to someone how much you care. And the way to prove to them how much you care is by actually listening to them. You learn trust by diagnosing. So if the diagnosis is thorough and both parties feel it, two things have to happen. You have to diagnose correctly and the client has to feel diagnosed correctly, like those two things happen, the solution will be simple, right? Because think about this. This is where I got challenged. Because I used to do the same thing. I'd go show up at presentations with two-inch thick books. And my friend, another ER doctor, he invited me in to present to a group of surgeons, his friends that were surgeons. And I was like, hey, before I go, can I show you my pitch deck? just the stack with all these numbers and all this, because these are surgeons. I mean, they're of all people, stereotypically, other than engineers, maybe you would want surgeons would need all the stuff. So I was walking through with the guy who referred me in. I'm like, here's what I'm going to show them. And he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. what are you doing? I was like, well, I got to prove to them. And he's like, hey man, let me ask you a question. The last time you went to the doctor, what did you leave with? I was like, well, often you leave with a prescription. I was like, it's a piece of paper. Could you even read the words on the paper. I was like, no, I was like, I couldn't even read it. It's like, what did you do? Like, I went to another scary place with people with white coats and I gave it to them and they made me sign something that said, if I grow a third arm, they'll like, and then I took the medicine. He's like, wait, wait, you didn't get a second opinion. No, you didn't go research it on Google. No. He's like, why? Because I felt diagnosed. And so my push back to that, like, I need to prove, I need to prove, I need to prove anytime I feel the way I do it, it I feel like I'm trying to prove. I take that as a check engine light. Like the check engine light says, you must have missed something, right? Back up and ask more questions. So that's on the client relationship thing. On the marketing thing, look, I, financial planning is complex, right? It's complex because the potential range of outcomes is really wide. There's a bunch of variables that go into it. There's nuance and edge cases. Like we could say to almost every financial planning question we get asked, we could say it depends to almost every question, right? So I think your job, and this is the last bit I'll say about this, like, I think don't confuse simplistic. And again, if I was drawing, if you're just listening to this, like pretend like just draw a line on a piece of paper and it's straight and easy and clean until you get to about the middle of the paper and then make it into like a giant pile of yarn, right? Just squirrel around, squiggle all over the place and then come out the other side. And I think what the job of a real advisor and what clients want, they will tell you this, please simplify my life. What they want is they want you to consider all that. That ball of yarn is the complexity you're talking about. It's the nuance, it's the edge cases, it's the, what about this, what about that, what about this? But then we have to come out the other side and go, you know what, and this is why this job is scary. It's because you don't know if you're right, right? You have to come out the other side and say, you know what, based on everything I know about you, based on all the discussions we've had, I think we should do this. And it's the this that represents elegant simplicity. So don't confuse simplistic. That's what the people who should be selling used cars, but are instead aren't in our industry, that's what they do. What real financial advisors do is called elegant simplicity. You've been through it. You've thought about it. The client doesn't want to go through that with you. They just want to know you did. And the way you can do that is by thoroughly understanding them and demonstrating that understanding. And in a marketing sense, you can demonstrate that understanding by nailing a problem, right? A specialized niche problem. You nail the problem. They say, oh my gosh, this person knows more about dentists in South Carolina than anybody I've ever met. And they knew it in one word because they used the same words I just used with my buddy who's a dentist, right? So that's, you become relevant quickly because you've thoroughly diagnosed and you're elegantly
1: simple. Yeah. Hopefully that's helpful. Very well said. Very well said. And those concepts are powerful and thank you for sharing them. I do want to shift a little bit to some other things I know we can learn from you, Carl, because- you've spent now, it's well over a decade, honing this ability to simplify concepts and building a brand around it. And you're in the public eye. So that means you're open to both praise and scrutiny and other criticisms at higher volume. And a lot of advisors are afraid to get out there and really open themselves up that way. They worry about Whether their social media activity and their efforts are having impact, they invest time in content and marketing, and it doesn't do what they expect it to do fast enough, and they give up. And these are some of the challenges advisors have. And and I just want to ask you about your journey. Um, Going from, hey, I have this behavior gap concept, I really believe in this, to now having an international brand and the ups and downs of that. What would you say to advisors who are struggling with this? Like, Should they keep putting the effort in? How do they commit when they hit those hurdles and it feels like it's not working? What should they do?
0: Yeah, super good question. So I don't know about the should part. I think what I can speak to is if you've decided that you want to either scale the business, and I'm not even sure about the word scale, you want to grow the business in terms of new client, or you want to scale influence and impact, right? So there's plenty of people who've built the business they want to build, and they're kind of done. And now they're looking at ways, how can I have a broader impact? So either way, If you've already decided that, I'm not sure about whether you should do that or not, but if you've decided that, I don't know any other way. And believe me, we've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, on trying to find other ways. Shortcuts, because we've all sat in the conferences and listened to the snake oil sales person sell some way about how to... I can't find any other way than just consistently showing up, doing the thing, that doing work in public. And what I mean by that is, and we should all understand this, right? Like, you know, the impact. I think of this as compound impact or compound influence. And if you think about compound interest, you know that image, right? It's flat, barely sloping up for a very long time. The example I always use is double a penny every day for 31 days. The number you end up at 31 days is 10.8 million, right? But think it's one, two, four, eight, 16, 32. Like, there's nothing exciting going on for the first 15 days. And we all point, and we do this to each other, but we point at the people that are on the steep end of that curve. And we say, how do I get there? And then there's more than a few people willing to show up and go, I can get you there really fast. And then we spend all our money on shortcuts that never work. And I think the only shortcut is to realize you've got to go through the boring end of the curve. You just have to. Now, there are things you can do to accelerate this rate at which you go through the boring end of the curve for sure, but you can't skip it altogether. I don't think, unless it's just sort of an outlier that it doesn't worth modeling after. So to me, there's a couple of things that you can steal. Number one, I would show up consistently, I think, and whatever you define as consistently. And I really think that monthly is too long and weekly feels about right. And I'm talking about like an email newsletter. And to me, that's the number one thing you could do is because I have direct ownership of that relationship, email, communication, best. We show up every week. We say we're going to show up every week. So that's number one, is consistently show up at an interval that's often enough. Number two, create something of value. It has to be relevant, right? In order for me to open your email versus delete the other 27,000 I delete every morning, I have to think like, oh, Robert's email is worth opening, right? So now that's a lot of weight. And the way to think about it being relevant is you can either think like, I'm going to do some real research on who's it for. Right, being really clear about who it's for. Or you make it for you. Like I love both of those models. Like Morgan Housel writes for an audience of one, him. Right. And and then he's gone out and found people who like that. That's the approach I've taken too. Like I'm writing stuff that I'm interested in. So creating relevant content. And then here's a really interesting thing. At first, when you're really scared to do this, let me give you some good news. (laughs) No one's listening. Right. (laughs) At first, no one's listening. (laughs) So at the very moment when you feel the least qualified and the least capable, the good news is no one's going to see it. It was my mom and my sister for like a year. And then once you get to the point where people are seeing it, you're going to feel a little better. Not much. I still feel the same way every single time I put a piece of content out. I felt the same way as I logged in to be on this podcast. I was like, Gosh, that little friend of mine called imposter syndrome shows up. It's like, what am I going to have valuable for Robert and his audience? And so once you start getting that feedback, then you realize like, well, there's a bunch of go-to things. Number one, any unthoughtful feedback. If it's unthoughtful, I will give you permission to delete it without a second thought, right? If it's unthoughtful, you just hit delete. It's not for them. They don't know. If it's thoughtful and still critical, treat that like gold. Right. Because if they took the time to think about it and then give you feedback, you treat that like gold. So I just, I know it's hard. I get scared. I have those days where I'm just like, I know, I got nothing. And the last piece on this it just reminded me the time. So imagine this every week, every week for 10 years. I tried to send it in on Thursday mornings. I'd come in on Thursdays sometimes not having any idea. I would sometimes I'd start with a sketch, but mostly I started with an idea, a concept. So I'd write and then I'd try and sketch it. And we can talk later if you want to about imposter syndrome, because every Thursday I had this big experience <laughs> with imposter. But the point I want to make here is sometimes I would send in the columns and be like, I had nothing. And I would fully expect an email back from my editor saying, you know, it's been a good run, but let's just call it. I can't tell you how many times those were the ones that everybody loved. And then I'd have these other times where I would write, like, I thought it was the masterpiece. This is the best thing I've ever done. And the sketch is so good. And I would get no feedback, just nothing, nobody crickets. That happened often enough that I fired myself from that job. And I, I sort of would like to fire you. Like you're fired, like take your stuff and get out, right? From that job you thought was deciding whether or not this piece of content you're about to release meets anybody else's or your own standards. If you have a problem with creating content, lower your standards. Hmm. And it happened often enough that I fired myself. I no longer worry about it. The only job I have is to do things that I find interesting and put them into the world and know that most of the time they're not going to work. But if I do it often
1: enough, if I play in traffic often enough, I'll certainly get hit. So fire yourself from that job. Well, what you create is interesting. And I think everybody would attest to that. But how do you do it, Carl? I mean, especially on those days when you don't feel it. How can you show up, create something interesting, even when you don't feel inspired?
0: <laughs> I almost never feel inspired. So I have a daily podcast every day. It's between 3 and 12 minutes. It's subscription, so you have to pay to get it. It's between 3 and 12 minutes, and there's no, no guess. And I think I just recorded episode 337. And it's a muscle so on the days, like yesterday, yeah, today's Tuesday, yesterday on Monday, I had nothing like literally at like six o'clock at night, I needed to go home. And I was like, I haven't recorded yet. So I just started recording, right? It's the same with a blank sheet of paper. And you just write. I mean, I literally recorded. I think the episode is about having nothing, right? Today's <laughs> one. Of, in fact, I know it is. I, <laughs> I know it is. It was a, some days just don't get better. That's what yesterday's episode was about. And I was like, I go to the gym, mostly when I'm not feeling good, I'm supposed to go to the gym on Monday morning. So I go to the gym and it's like magic. It's happened so often that if I don't feel like doing my workout by the end of the workout, I feel like doing it. I feel great yesterday. It didn't. And the whole day went that way. I never caught it. It just never came around. And guess what? It's okay. That was the episode. So you can literally write. I have nothing to say. I have nothing to say. I have nothing to say until you have something to say. And then you're going to notice, like, I now have a habit. I, my phone, I, I would show you. Now the ideas come so often. I've got like 80, last time I looked, it was like 87 notes in memos about single ideas. Like the other day, percolate, percolate, that word. I was like, imagine letting things percolate. And so I've got an idea on percolate, right? Mm-hmm. So now I just take notes and I can go to that list. In fact, I don't know why I didn't go to that list yesterday. That's hilarious that I forgot. But it was one of those days, Carl. Yeah, nothing. There you go. So but do believe me, because Ron Lieber, my editor, said this when I said, Hey, should we keep doing this column? After two weeks, I said, Hey, should we keep doing this? And he was like, Well, yeah, how often? I said, How about weekly? And he said, He'll tell you this. He said, Won't you run out of ideas? And I was like, I don't know. Let's find out. And 10 years later, no chance. So it is a little bit of a muscle. It is a little bit of a muscle that you can, no matter how uncreated you think you are, no matter how much of an engineer or a spreadsheet nerd you feel like you are, look at Michael Kitsis. He's the nerdiest of all of us. And he has endless content
1: to create now. So it's, it's a little bit of a muscle that you can learn to do. Yeah, no doubt. When you look at our industry, you mentioned a few areas where advisors can really improve how they connect with clients. You mentioned presentations. You mentioned how they create content. Are there other areas when you look at the way advisors do business that you think some disruption is needed in this area? Yeah, for sure,
0: for sure. And I'm just trying to be careful here because I think the one that I want, I, you know what, who cares? I'm going to talk about the one that I want to talk about, which is allowing yourself to be opinionated, right? Like having a unique voice. And the way, like just do this once, everybody's listening to this, just hit pause, do a Google search and search for financial advisor in and insert the name of your town. Pull up the top 10 results and just go look at each website just 30 seconds. How many lighthouses do you see? (laughs) How many compasses, how many sailboats, or how many couples holding hands on the beach? It's all the same. You would never know the difference. I bet you cannot tell the difference between the top 10 results on Google for your town or even nationally. Like what if you just did, and I know this is so scary, right? Like, cause it's so safe. Even if it's terrible, it's safer to do the thing that everybody else does. What if you did it different, and this is deep work here, but I know you have a sense of what I'm talking about, right? Like, especially the kind of younger crew in our industry or people who've come in from the outside recently. If you're new, quote unquote, when you came, you came because there was something you thought should be done differently. And then what you did as soon as you got here is you looked around and, and we did it to you. We smashed you just like we do in first, second, and third grade. And we tell you, no, put that away. Stay in line. you know, Do the thing that we all do. I would just, next time you're like, could you please just try to remember what that was? Right? Try to remember it. Well, no, you know what? I only wanted to serve these people and I wanted to do it this way. Or I remember reading all this garbage. Now I'm writing it. What if you did it the way you thought before? Like, that's the thing that I I feel like more than anything. I mean, I'm seeing some signs of this that are making me so happy. Like, if you go to the societyofadvice.com's homepage, you'll see, like, there's nothing there. Well, because we believe that the website has one purpose, to get permission to communicate again, right? Like, what if you, sorry, this is a little bit of a rant, but there's a great, one of my favorite websites in the whole world is a website for a marketing firm in Auckland, New Zealand. And they punch way above their weight, bunch of stuff in Southeast Asia and Australia and all over the place. Marketing firm, it's been this way for, the website's been this way for over a decade, same website. It's totally white, blank white page. And right in the middle, it says, this page intentionally left blank. It used to be that if you hovered over this page intentionally, it was a link. And if you clicked it, it took you to a new page and the domain name was onepixel.com. They've let that expire. And now it takes you to a whatever domain place. This is the number one marketing agency in New Zealand, Australia, and Southeast Asia. So I'm just saying, we need more of you, right? We need you to be different. We need different voices. I'm sick of voices like mine. I'm sick of doing the same thing. So if we all funnel into the same place and put the compass on the website, nobody knows how to find you. So that's the disruption I'd love to see. Can we do it differently? Could you price it differently? Could you meet with people? So are we starting to see that, like pricing differently, meeting styles? Like you've got permission right now to think about redoing everything. Like never have you had a chance like this because the whole world reset. So that's the disruption I'd love to see.
1: Yeah, absolutely. By the way, do you talk about this type of thing in the society for those who actually join it and go through the course?
0: Yeah, that's all we do. So the society, the piece of the society that people don't know much about is our monthly, we have a monthly meeting. We call it the worldwide chapter meeting where I invite a guest and we have, you know, we've had Seth Godin on and James Clear and Jennifer Garvey Berger and Morgan Housel. And those guests are chosen specifically because most of them, sometimes we have an exception, but most of them are outside the industry and we want them to be telling us about how their work. Why don't you guys do this? Right? Like why couldn't we change this? And then the goal is to be supportive during that meeting to like go away and say, I could do things differently if I wanted to. So for sure.
1: Yeah yeah well thanks for telling us about this society i know there's a lot of advisors that would benefit from it you know i joined it a couple of years ago and actually went through the initial uh, early iteration of it and i found value in it so just a Super side cool. note Thank there you. yeah so carl uh completely unrelated to what we've been talking about so far i heard that you are starting to get into the nft game is that right <laughs> do i have that right
0: all right i well yeah so this is sort of a secret but since you asked, we've been playing around with a whole bunch of different projects. I mean, we're releasing a book that we're only selling to hundred people. And we were thinking about trying to, how to tie that to an NFT. And we haven't quite nailed that because there's some complexity there that I just don't, I want somebody to, I don't want somebody to have a bad experience. Right. But we did just recently talk about the idea of, of, so we're exploring it. Let me put it that way. We're exploring releasing a new sketch
1: all right. Well, you're you're obviously a smart guy. You have a history in financial services. If you're not going to tell us about your project completely, which is fine, I respect the secret. What's your view on NFTs? I mean, is it just a bunch of uh, hype to fluff up Ethereum prices, or is there more to it? You know, how do you see this thing?
0: Look, I don't know what is going, what the end game is going to turn out to be, but I know there's something super exciting about it. Like from my perspective. Like I can tell you a little bit about our project and use this as an example. You know, Jack Butcher has been on as a guest at the the membership program and Jack and I are friends and we've talked a lot about this. Like here's Jack Butcher, right? Digital artist. And now you've got a way, a super simple, easy way for people who feel digitally native, right? Like are comfortable in that environment to, for Jack to sell his art, like I don't see, I mean, it's super exciting, but what I'm really excited, like, so we're going to, I'm going to do, I'm thinking about doing a new sketch every, whatever, every month, every quarter, every week, we don't know yet. And releasing that as, cause I'm a digital artist. I used to be a physical artist cause it was card stock and Sharpie, but now I'm doing it on the iPad. How cool is that? And what I'm interested in is, can we then also grant, and this is relatively unique because people use my art so often right can the art come with the use license right so that you can then use it in print it and put it on your wall use it in your presentations you know so the idea of like linking use rights to digital art and having a way for that to be a trustless contract that happens simply and then fascinating to me is like i no longer think of that person as a customer that person's an equity owner right? Like, cause if they sell it, hopefully it's more valuable for them. And of course we know I get a piece of that as a royalty. So it shifts the whole dynamic from customer. I'm going to sell you something to, Hey, would you like, like I, this, I mean, you asked, I get so excited about this because to me, it feels like, wow, I could sell my catalog. And not only that I could do, I started thinking like, what if it was a mini IPO of my catalog? So people were an investor in the catalog, not just a customer of Behavior Gap. They were an investor in; they owned some of my best work, and with that ability to own, they could sell it if there was ever a secondary market. Like that's kind of exciting. That's maybe telling you what I think about NFTs, using a specific example of why I would be excited about it.
1: Yeah, it's super cool, and w- I see a bidding war coming, Carl, for for the Behavior Gap NFTs. So hopefully, uh, we can all be part of that. That's exciting. And I'm excited for sure. you thanks for asking. All right. well, look, we're about out of time here. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. You know the theme of this podcast. It's steal my strategy. You've given us a number of good things we can take away. Thank you for that. But I want to conclude with one thing. that one thing, Carl, we've covered a lot. It can be something we've already talked about or it can be something new. If you wanted the advisors listening to this to walk away and, well, the lady is at the door with the clipboard. What do you want them to remember?
0: Yeah, I, I think one the one thing that I would steal and it feels a little more mindset-y than it is exactly tactical, and that's probably on purpose, is to regularly and consistently play in traffic. Whatever that means. I, like People get all fired up about arguing about the actual artifact. Podcast and this and another and I go, okay, fine. I don't care. I'm artifact agnostic. What I care about is that you take what's going on in your head That is super valuable. We don't have time here to convince you of that, but it's super valuable. I promise you, it's super valuable. The way you explain diversification in a meeting, the way the analogy you use for asset allocation or asset location, all of those stories that you've built up over the years, they're all only in your head. And the only way for that to change. And to me, I care a lot about financial advisors, but I care more about the people out there and the people don't know where to get help. And they don't even believe. When I tell people that real financial advisors exist, my journalist friends especially are like, they look at me like the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Like I'm talking about a fairy tale. And the only way for that to change, right? It's like there's a secret society, right? Of real financial advisors. The only way for it to change is to consistently play in traffic. So my, what I would steal is I would make a commitment to once a week create the thing I'm not going to argue with you about the artifact. But if you can't come up with anything more clever, just write an email. Take the 100 people you know, send that email to them. Tell them that you're going to do this once a week. I do this all the time. We create commitments simply for the purpose of forcing us. That's why I kept doing the times thing for so long. Was then I'd wake up and look back and I've 200,000 words. I have a friend who wanted to write a book, but he couldn't get over the idea of a book. So he sold Subscriptions to a monthly magazine that he promised for 12 months and that each month would be five to six thousand words. People paid him. So then he had to write it. So make whatever commitment you have to make to create something at a very minimum weekly. Pick a time. I know my time. Thursdays at nine o'clock, the Behavior Up newsletter goes out. It's been that way for a decade now. Pick a time, pick a date, do it every week. And then I promise you, we just recently, when we started Behavior Up Radio, the question I asked myself was, if I did this every day for a year, at the end of the year, would I be happy or sad that I did it? (laughs) I don't know why I'll be happy, but I know I'll be happy. So if you commit to me to do something every week for 52 weeks, I promise you, I don't know why you'll be happy. I can't draw that line. It's too complex, but I promise you, you'll be happy you did it. So that's the thing I would steal.
1: It's worth stealing. You've been an amazing guest, Carl. Thank you so much for sharing with us. And for those who want to reach out, learn more, follow your work, where should they go? The Thesocietyofadvice.com.
0: Thesocietyofadvice.com. And throw your email address in there and you'll find out what happens.
1: All right. Well, I think that's a good decision. I highly recommend it. And again, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Cheers, Robert. That was really fun.